Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The star of On Java Road, the latest novel from Lawrence Osborne, is Adrian Guile, a down-on-his-luck correspondent in Hong Kong in the midst of its 2019 protests. Adrian spends his time drinking with Jimmy Tang, a royal screw-up for one of Hong Kong's tycoon families. But a new character and an unexpected death threatens to drive a wedge in their relationship, as Hong Kong is mired in its own uncertain future. Lawrence Osborne is the author of The Glass Kingdom, The Forgiven, The Ballad of a Small Player, Hunters in the Dark, and six books of nonfiction. His short story, Volcano, was elected for the Best American Short Stories 2012, and he has written for the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, New York Times Book Review, Forbes, Harper's, and several other publications. Today, Lawrence and I talk about the choice of Hong Kong as a setting, his use of real-world places, and the decision to use a still-fresh event as the backdrop for his latest novel. So, Lawrence, thanks for coming on the show again um, to talk about your latest novel, On Java Road. You know, you set books in Morocco, Cambodia, Macau. Um, the last time you were on the show for The Glass Kingdom, you talked about uh, your book was set in Thailand. So, but for this novel, you've chosen Hong Kong as your setting and Hong Kong specifically during the protests of 2019. Why did you choose this setting and this time period uh, for your latest novel? Well, there's a, that's a complicated question, and it requires a slightly complicated answer, I guess. I mean, first of all, I mean, just on a sort of um, primitive emotional level, Hong Kong was always a place that um, I loved very much, and that was very uh, close to my heart over many decades of going there. Um, and also a place where I considered moving and living several times, but I never did it. But, but it was always like a sort of... Um, you know, I live in Asia, I, I live very, uh, not very far away, a couple of hours away in, in Bangkok. But Hong Kong is different because of its British past and its British founding and its uh, relationship to the English language and it's, you know, all of that. So that's a fair, that's a context that doesn't really exist um, in any other Asian city except Singapore. And, you know, there's a sort of uh, visceral connection, I think, between uh, the UK, Britain, and a place like Hong Kong, um, which I think everybody feels and everybody understands, even if they don't think about it consciously that much and they don't go there. But of course, a lot of us did go there. Um, I never went there for banking reasons or financial reasons or business reasons or political reasons. I would always go there just as a, as a sort of a, a flaneur, it's just sort of just to enjoy the city and, you know, um, and so I felt it had got under my skin for a, bit by bit over a long period of time. And there was something also about the setting in the city. It always reminded me of Rio de Janeiro, some one of these cities in Brazil, with those sort of green mountains that plunge down to the sea and those sort of the dragon's back, all those trails that go to um, you know, these little villages. It just seemed like a sort of, um, you know, uh, there's something kind of archaic about, about Hong Kong and there's something uh, that evokes the Chinese past. Um, in a way that many places in contemporary China don't. So it, it was always a, paradox, a, a beautifully paradoxical place to me. And of course, also that you see that in the spirit of the streets, the spirit of the food, the spirit of the people, and so on. Um, so uh, these, these are my reasons. They had nothing to do with the protests, per se. Um, 
I happened to be in, in Hong Kong in 2019, just sort of watching it. But I didn't go there for that reason. I didn't go there to witness it. It just sort of happened when I was there. So it seemed to me that clearly it was the beginning of one era and, and um, sorry, the end of one era and the beginning of another in a very profound sense and a very tragic sense, actually. Um, very complicated sense. Uh, but since this was since it was happening in front of me, and of course the protests were extraordinary, millions of people were in the streets. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, I've been to protests in Bangkok, I've been to protests in Istanbul, I've been to protests, uh, you know, you name it. But um, nothing like that. It was unlike anything I'd seen before. So I thought it was interesting. And I also was struck by the fact that mainstream media were not really covering it very well. They weren't covering it on an hour by hour basis, but uh, lots of freelance young GoPro journalists um, or amateur journalists were doing that. And I thought that was also an interesting moment in the evolution of the media that the big companies and media corporations were not able to cover a story which a sort of freelancer 25 year old with a, with, a, with, a, with a gas mask could do. And that I think was a very, in terms of citizen journalism, it was all going on on Twitter. I thought that was something that was worth writing about. Um, I thought at the time that very few novelists were gonna do that in the English language anyway. And I think that's turned out to be correct. Um, and one more thing, I had a feeling that there was gonna be a kind of indifference about it ultimately because the mainland Chinese were going on about how, how the CIA was involved. But actually, I think what it really was, was that the powers that be in the West really didn't care that much. Um, they really weren't that invested in it, and it didn't seem important to them. But it seemed important to me. You know, I, I must admit, in kind of reading, in reading on Java Road, it was, it was strange reading about a place and locations that I've personally been to, um kind of written up in in the style common to your novels you know like you mentioned foxglove that's a bar that i've been to before um it was okay <laughs> um uh you talk about like you mentioned spring deer you mentioned so you mentioned all these places that i that i go to normally and it was just it was it was strange seeing them written up in again in in your novel you know why did you want to talk about real places like places that actually exist in hong kong rather than i guess go the easy route and make something up well what would be the alternative the alternative would be you say what to use google maps or something that's not how i work i don't like that um in all the in all the books that i've written about places there are always places i spend a lot of time in and you know you, you have to remember i never spent time in hong kong with the intention of writing a novel not at all i, I was just there hanging out in these places, enjoying myself. I was there as a kind of glorified tourist, really. Um, so when I came to write about it, um, I didn't want to just uh, make things up because I found that I knew the places you know, very, very well. And also I wanted the texture of the city to be cinematically realistic because it's, a, it's an amazing texture that is very underreported and very underused. And this is something that journalists can't capture by the very nature of journalism. Remember, I was a journalist for a long time, um, not in Hong Kong or anything to do with Hong Kong, but in, 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 the, in other places. And I, one of the things I always regretted about journalism uh, was that it was really 
because it's not imaginative fiction, it's not film, it's not stories, it can't render the real texture of places. And you know, one of the big scenes in the book, of course, is in the China Club. And it was like one of those places that, to me, is a sort of inherently cinematic interior. Um, you know, very intricate and beautiful in its way, very glamorous in its way. And I thought, why not um, partake in that glamour? Why not bring out some of that? And then contrast it with tear gas in the streets. But all that seemed to me in writing it to be realistic. And, um, you know, when I fact check novels that I write, I walk around with a stopwatch afterwards to find out that if I have two characters walking down the street, I want them to be arriving from A to B in exactly the amount of time that it takes on a stopwatch. So I check all those things and try to make it as uh, accurate as I can. This is just a thing that's important to me uh, personally. And But I, in a way, I think it's um, in a certain kind of novel, it's also important to readers. This is not to say that I haven't made, gotten things wrong because you always get things wrong. Um, you know. And of course, the city has changed a lot in three years. I haven't been back in three years. But my, my, my story is time specific. So, you know, even if certain things are closed or disappeared or whatever, you know, that's just in the nature of the beast. I don't even know if Duggles are still open. Yeah, I hope it is. One of my favorite restaurants in the world, by the way. It is, it is still open. I, I had brunch there, I think, not that long ago. Um, okay. They have an outlet at the airport now. I said I saw, I was a bit um, ambiguous about that. Because mm. Duggles is also a place... You know, when I used to go have lunch or have dinner there, I'd always think this is a scene that I can see in a in a in a story. It's just made for that, you know. Um, and so I used it. As, I used I used Duddles as well. I know the Duddles at the airport probably doesn't quite have the same uh, no, romance the same. to it. <laughs> um, but 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 you mentioned journalists, and you know, and 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 the main protagonist of your novel is is a journalist, um, and it seems like it features. Uh, on Java features kind of the last gasp of, of a certain kind of Hong Kong-based foreign correspondent. Um, you know, so been in the city a long time, uh, an expat for sure. Um, although I guess I guess not not entirely. There are there are some. Um, um, but it, it seems like it seems like is is that is that kind of journalist, whether in Hong Kong or even globally, is that kind of journalist gone for better or for worse? I think the media system is dying in many ways. Yes, I think that's um, to be replaced, as I said before, with uh, other kinds of journalism that are mushrooming up. You know, I think that sort of, if I, I've done my time at the FCC. You know, I know, you know, I know a lot of those people. I know, you know, um, but obviously I don't think those, that kind of journalism can really survive in China because it's just, you know, it's a censorship regime. It's not a journal, it's not a culture which journalism thrives or has any place. And so it's inevitably part of the British system. And uh, it's gradually, I think, faded away, fading away. And I suspect now pretty much faded away. I'm not even sure what you can write about in Hong Kong anymore, unless you're just doing financial news and things like that. And so this was inevitable to a certain extent. And um, in the novel, you know, I thought it would be interesting just to sound, sound its death knell and then we'll see where it goes. I think it really is not coming back. I think it's pretty much done. Um, what will happen in the future will be uh, internal to China and the Chinese, and you'll have a different thing. Um, there may be a different kind of insurrectionary journalism by young Chinese people, and I think that's probably already there, but not allowed to express itself yet. But for the foreign correspondents, I think, yeah, that day is done, I think. Uh, also, I mean, 
you know, this idea of all over the world, we see that, you know, the media corporations don't really keep foreign correspondents or foreign news desks in the way that they used to in the 60s and 70s. I mean, the heyday of all that is definitely, uh, has definitely gone, you know, even the New York Times, I mean, doesn't keep as many as it used to. Um, and I have friends who run those desks, you know, college friends who are now running the New York Times desks in, you know, in Kabul and like, you know, all kinds of places, or, or used to be in Kabul, I should say. Um, and they say it's, it's, it's faded. It's, it's, it's on its way out. You know? uh, that's true even in Paris, by the way, not just Hong Kong. You know, just kind of shift to other, to other characters um, in your book. Uh, there's... There's their protagonist, Adrian Guile, but then there's his there's his friend, although maybe that should be in in quotes, I guess. Um, Jimmy Tank, um, who is the uh royal screw up scion of a of a rich Hong Kong tycoon family. Um, you know, is is there something about Hong Kong's elite families, um, longstanding business families from China, uh, that make them kind of good additions to to a novel like yours? Oh, for sure. I think they're very inherently uh, high drama families. <laughs> you follow the, you know, you follow like the, the soap and the news in Hong Kong for not. I mean, not just now. I mean, for years. Um, you know, they're highly neurotic, highly strung. You know, and perhaps this is understandable given the precarious uh, nature of their existence between a rock and a hard place. Um, of course, Jimmy is based on somebody I knew at Cambridge, so all of that is autobiographical. Um, it's not autobiographical in terms of him in Hong Kong now, but it's autobiographical in terms of how, uh, who I knew at Cambridge in 1983, which was a long time ago. And at, th at that time, um, a wealthy uh, Chinese student and someone like me, who was really an outsider at, at Cambridge, I mean, I wasn't really supposed to go there in many ways. You know, I found myself there as a scholarship kid. And we hit it off because we both fell kind of outside the British system, which I thought was quite interesting. I'd never actually thought about it that much, or I certainly hadn't written about it until I came to write the novel. And then I thought that class tension, uh, you know, Hong Kong, Britain, him, me, this was an interesting, um, you know, set of tensions between uh, four different things. But in the end, you know, the book is a love story. Also. I mean, that, and that's what I, uh, that's what I wanted it to be. Its direct inspiration was, you know, in the mood for love. It was Wong Kar Wai, you know, those films that I've been watching half my life. I wonder if you might kind of dig a bit more into this idea of your novel as a as a love story. What exactly is it a love story towards? Well, um, it's not a love story in a kind of straightforward Mills and Boone way. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's not a. It's not a sort of um, steamy central love story. But I don't think real love stories about that anyway. Um, they're about the inability to attain something distant. Um, I think that's the very core of the, you know, the, the, the very word romantic comes from medieval chivalric love, which was, you know, not being able to obtain what you can see, what you desire. And in a way, um, you know, Rebecca, I mean, the female character is a character that Guile, the English character, Guile, is somebody, it's somebody that he can't obtain, he can't get near her because, well, there's an age difference, there's a kind of cultural chasm, and of course she's also the girlfriend or the, you know, the lover of his old friend. Um, and 
he is kind of excluded from any possibility of that going to anything. And on top of that, he's also about to leave. He's about to get kicked out. Um, I didn't sit down to write a so-called love story, actually. But I found that when I was writing it, there was that sort of romantic mood came into the paragraphs, the sentences. I don't know why or how. These things just happen the way they happen. Um, I set out really to write a kind of political thriller, if you like. Um, but, you know, my own feelings about the place came through as well, because I've always thought Hong Kong was an intensely romantic place. I don't mean romantic in a, romantic in a silly teenage way. I mean romantic in terms of its idea of itself is inherently impossible. It can't really... It's like it's a place that shouldn't really exist. Um, it From a distance, even, it, it has the quality of a mirage. It looks like something like you know, uh, Fata Morgana, it has, it has a quality about it that is not, you know, that is not pedestrian, it's not prosaic. Um, this is why it's such a difficult city to understand. It's, you you know, you either love Hong Kong and that those are the reasons that you love it, or you don't see those things and you don't. It, you know, it's, it's nothing in between, I don't think. Um, so anyway, that's how the novel evolved as I wrote it. And then the character of Rebecca herself, became something uh, enigmatic in a way, I suppose. But, you know, this is often the way that you meet people in real life, that they're unattainable and they remain enigmatic. And obviously, I think filmmakers and writers are drawn to that because there's some there's a human essence to it, which is uh, the way we feel things in real life. You know, I, I, that leads me to another question um, kind of about Hong Kong as a city and and how that, at least in my mind, um, relates to 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 your novel. Um, you know, I it, without really spoiling anything, um, you know, a lot of the mysteries in in On Javaro don't quite resolve. Um, I think people come to an understanding of things, but they don't. We don't get we don't get full answers. Um, to a lot of these yeah. questions. And in my mind, that was connected to kind of Hong Kong's still um, still uncertain state right now. I think post the protests, yeah. post COVID, um, I think no one is quite sure what Hong Kong will be like. I mean, this, it, things have changed, but no one's quite sure what the end result's going to be. Um, I guess, it, 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 was that something that was going through your mind about kind of, yeah. kind of connecting yeah. the... The uncertain resolution of your narrative to the uncertain future of Hong Kong. Absolutely, I did that very much on purpose. And while I was editing the book in New York, uh, I had a lot of resistance from the editorial team because they were not Hong Kongers. Obviously, they were in New York, but they were they were like, "Well, why you know why can't you know the answer? Why can't it be determinate? Why can't it be concrete? Why can't you resolve this? Why couldn't you resolve that?" And I found myself saying always the same thing: "You don't know Hong Kong." that you don't understand it doesn't it doesn't work that, that way uh you can't have um it's just not that kind of place i don't think um and also and therefore the story that emerged from that place couldn't be like that either you couldn't have like a neatly tied up kind of thriller blah 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 i don't think it would be resonant in any way with a place um and i just don't feel places like that I mean, regardless of the protests, I mean, Hong Kong has always had a lot of, uh, it's always been a honeycomb of secrecy and, you know, hidden things and 
you know, undercurrents and, you know, uh, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of people crammed into a very small space. Um, and the way its power has always been structured has always been, um, you know, secretive. And I think that's like, it adds to the kind of, I think that atmosphere of the city is something that you can feel. I mean, I know it has a kind of um, very kind of money-driven, prosaic, brutal kind of blah, blah, blah. Okay, of course, all of that is true at the same time. But what you have is both, you have both coexisting. So yeah, I kept, I, I thought, um, I made the case when I finished the first two drafts and so on, I gave them in and I said, you know what, I want people not to know. Because I, I think um, during the troubles, during the protests, people didn't know what happened to person X or person Y. It was unresolvable. And they'll never know. Um, you know, that's just the way it is. And this is like, um, to editors living in a kind of place like the United States, which is a kind of um, solution-obsessed democracy, to them it was incon inconceivable. They would say, like, we're here, we'd find out what happened, and that would be the end of the story. And I would go, no, you can't do that here. It doesn't work like that here. Um, you know, so but anyway, I got my way, and I, I and I think it ended up as a better book for that reason because it, you know, um, you just don't need to know. It doesn't matter. Things happen. You don't know why they happen. You don't know what the outcome is. You don't know. You can see the effect on the narrator. That's the main thing. The narrator is changed by something he doesn't understand. That's the story. You know, I, I want to end our conversation. Um... With a question about about using the protests as, um, if not the setting, then at least kind of the, the the backdrop for for your novel, you know, I expect we're going to see more books, both from Hong Kong writers and from overseas writers, that use the protests in 2019 as a as a backdrop at the very least, um, and you can understand why, as you mentioned at the beginning of your comments, like it's a very, um, it was an event that was on. The front pages of global newspapers. It lets a lot, a lot of very vivid imagery, a lot of very vivid emotions from from a lot of the people involved. It fits into big geopolitical narratives, um, and so we're gonna we're 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 gonna see more books set during the protests. Um, but for you, did you find it different or difficult to use a setting that's still, I think, quite fresh in a lot of people's minds, and something that was so kind of prominently covered in in global media? Well, no, because I don't think it was covered that much in global media. To be surprised. I mean, oh, uh, when I was, you know, because I published in New York mainly, but I mean, talking to people there, I mean, people in the in the publishing and Random House, they had no idea about any of this. They no, never heard of it. <laughs> it's incredible. You thought they had seen a few things on CNN for five seconds, but it, it doesn't really register with them at all. So it's exactly the other way around. I thought that it was basically a great wall of indifference. And, you know, it wasn't a kind of aggressive indifference. It was just like, you know, they're just other things that they're obsessing about. And Hong Kong's a long way away. And it was never seen. I mean, obviously, some people will see it as the fault line between the democratic world and the non-democratic world, which it is. I mean, OK, but, but I don't think uh, the American media in particular really you know, latched onto that. And I can tell from the reviews of the book that uh, most of the people reviewing it were not that interested in it or knowledgeable about, you know, it was seen very much as a local thing. 
You know, that's that's I mean, that's a paradox which uh, I kind of anticipated because I, I didn't. So, you know, when uh, when you say there's bound to be more books for the protests, I'm not sh- I'm not so sure you're right. I mean, I'm sure there will be some, you know, I, I, I don't know. I haven't been um, I haven't been looking left and right, you know, because it, maybe there are. And I think people in Hong Kong, uh, I know of a couple of people who are writing some really interesting things. there. But I mean, it's can they publish there? Do they have to publish outside? You know, um, what is the Anglo-American publishing world fa- obsessed with? Gender. <laughs> Gender. No, nothing to do with Hong Kong. <laughs> obsessed with things that I'm actually not writing about. Not just Hong Kong, but in you know, all my other books. Um, so I think it's an outlier, personally. Yeah, but, and, and, um, well, it, say, and, and that's and that's a fair point. I mean, you know, I, as someone who, who was here during when all this was happening, um, I think to me it's very, it's, it's, I, I guess my my perspective is is undoubtedly different than than someone in the U.S. who was maybe seeing this stuff pop up on CNN for five minutes, as you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's you know you have to remember how distant from these things uh, you know people living in places like London and New York really are. They're not really. They've got uh, these are also. I mean, I speak of those those cities because I'm writing in English. So that's that's where you know that's where I publish. That's where I, I operate those uh people the culture in those places is completely inward looking it's completely obsessed with itself it's navel gazing about you know racial and gender stuff that the rest of the world doesn't really care about and then you have the war in ukraine now whatever but but you know things like um but yeah but up until recently i think there was a large-scale indifference about china i think you know people didn't really think about it that much and didn't really care that much this may be changing as uh, hostilities ramp up between the two great blocks. But hitherto, um, and you know, uh, the, the Westerners, you know, mainlanders are always saying the Westerners were interfering in the protests. You know, because you know it's nonsense. They were exactly the way around. They had no idea what to do. They were they were completely uh, wrong footed. They didn't know how to react, and they didn't react. They didn't do anything. What did they do? There was no reaction whatsoever. Uh, the bank stayed there. The, the, I mean, the fact is, the most most of the foreigners living in Hong Kong just want to make money in the banking system. They don't care about this stuff. Um, so I, I would be quite interested. Now, of course, now uh, we've just signed the contracts for the movie of on Java Road. So a movie has a bigger impact than a novel. So you know, um, maybe a couple of years down the line, um, if they make the film, if it comes out, if they're able to do it you might have a different situation. It might have a different thing. But I suspect that the movie will be a kind of, will be very much a kind of uh, twisted love story with this thing in the background. It won't be uh, specifically about the protests. Well, well, we'll, we'll, see, how, we'll see how that develops. Um, I think this is a great place to interview with Lawrence Osborne, author of On Java Road. Lawrence, thanks again for, for coming on the show and talking about... Um, this book it was great having you on the show two years ago now uh to talk about your last book as always i i have two more questions for you um you've kind of hinted at the answer to one of them already um but the first question is you know where can people find your work and second question is kind of what's what might the next project be uh you can find you mean books or films well the books uh all right well however you want to interpret that question 
So, um, so the movie of my first novel, The Forgiven, is on all the aircraft, is on all the airlines now. So, if you're taking a flight, you can find it on your entertainment system. Um, and apart from that, it's on Netflix. It's on, um, you know, it's on Amazon Prime, whatever. And uh, novels you can find in uh, good bookshops everywhere, as they say. Um, and next project, uh, I wrote an original script for a film set in Mongolia. And uh, we did the location, location scouts in September, and it's shooting early next year. So that, that I will be very much involved in that. I think I'll be next, that will be my next thing to do. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, the Asian Review Books podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. But before then, Lawrence, thank you so much again for coming on the show. You're very welcome.